0: Hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads, with me, Chris Stanmore major In this episode, we're starting a new book. It's called Strange But True, The Life and Adventures of Captain Thomas Crapo and Wife. It was published in New Bedford in 1893. Preface The voyage of Captain Thomas Crapo and his wife in a dory from New Bedford, Massachusetts, to England, although several years ago, is as fresh in the memory of the people as though it were but yesterday. I did not see them or the boat when they sailed, but I was anxious to get the daily papers in order to find out if they were reported, and was more than pleased to see that every time they were reported, they were both well and in good spirits. And at last, the papers announced the arrival of the captain and his plucky wife at Penzance, England. People did not think so much about the captain making the attempt, as they did the idea of taking his wife along, And as the voyage was ended without any serious disasters, the newspapers of every country loudly applauded them. Since it was reported that the attempt was to be made, I was very anxious to see the hero, but never did, to my knowledge, until about five or six years ago, when I, in company with my wife, attended one of the churches on a Sunday evening. Near the close of the evening services, the pastor extended an invitation to everyone present who would like to testify for Jesus. Several responded and gave their testimony, when presently a gentleman directly in front of me arose and made a few remarks. After concluding his speech, the pastor spoke in this manner, as near as I can recall it. Thank God, after years of trials and tribulations on the briny deep and crossing the Atlantic in a small dory, Captain Crapo at last acknowledges his superior and now stands before the whole world a living witness for Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. I was all attention at once. The one I had longed most to see was before me, and I could scarcely keep my eyes from him. As I had sailed the ocean myself, I could readily foresee some of the dangers they would have to face in that little boat, and his wife being with him when there was scarcely room for one and turn around made the matter worse, as they would naturally encounter gales when the captain would find it all he could do to look after the boat, to say nothing of his wife. After their arrival, they had a little book printed about the voyage, which they sold for five cents, and everyone seemed to want it. I got one through a friend of mine, and eagerly devoured its contents. A short time ago, I was introduced to the captain by his wife, whose acquaintance I had made nearly two years before, and I found him a modest, unassuming man, and not addicted to bragging about his exploits. In talking with him on several occasions, I made up my mind that no adventures had been written that could equal the personal experience of the captain of more than 30 years at sea, and I proposed the idea of publishing his adventures to the world. After carefully considering the matter, he at last consented to do so, as many people had advised him the same a great many times before. But, says Captain Crapo, the people of today are looking for something romantic that never really existed And would probably think my book too tame as I will not have anything in it but truths whether it sells or not. And therefore, kind reader, you can be assured that every word enclosed between the covers of this book about Captain Crapo and his wife are facts, and no fairy tale to mislead. So, with the kind permission of our friends everywhere, we will begin our story as told by the captain himself, as correctly as he can recall the facts, Many of minor importance no doubt have passed from his memory long ago, but those coupled with his experience written in this book, he will probably remember as long as he lives. The Author The Captain's Story Chapter 1 I was born in the city of New Bedford, June 27th, 1842. My mother died when I was but eight years of age. I attended the public schools until I was about fourteen, when I ran away from home to go to sea. I had been desirous of becoming a sailor for a long time, but my father had always objected. So the only way for me to do was to run away from my home, which as many others had done before, I saw no reason why I could not do the same. The more I thought about it, the more determined I was. And as the whale ship Marcia was nearly ready for sea, I left my home and shipped aboard of her as cabin boy. The Marcia was commanded by Captain Billings, and we sailed from New Bedford on the 25th of August, 1857, bound for the North Pacific Ocean. As the custom has always been, the crew was shipped on what is called a lay. I was to receive the 215th, which meant that of every 215 barrels of oil caught by the ship, one belonged to me, or the equivalent in money, and the bone in the same proportion. And as the outfitters, termed sharks, usually charge $100 for clothes that could be bought for $25 at any clothing store, the sailors cannot justly claim anything from the ship until their bill, with interest, is paid. And the clothes they sell to the poor sailors, as a general thing, scarcely hold together until they get into deep water, and the tobacco that can be bought at any tobacco store for 50 cents, they charge the sailors $1 per pound. Anything. Anything to rob the poor, misguided sailor who, as soon as his money is gone, is off again on another voyage. I was informed that my duties were to keep the cabin clean, wash dishes, black the captain's boots, and make myself generally useful. Our crew numbered 35 all told, which was the usual complement for a whale ship that swung four boats. Our crew consisted of captain, first, second, third and fourth mates, four boat steerers, cook, steward, cooper, carpenter and cabin boy and 21 seamen, some of them able seamen, ordinary seamen and the balance were green hands making their first voyage. As usual when a ship sails, relatives and friends of the crew accompany them down the bay returning with the pilot on the pilot boat. The pilot while on board has full charge of the vessel and remains on board until she is in deep water with plenty of sea room. The captain assumes command as soon as the pilot leaves. A large number went down with us, and everything was bustle and commotion, and one could scarcely tell which of them had shipped for the voyage, as they were up and down the forecastle, and in fact all round all parts of the ship, and dinner being served while they were on board, they partook of it with the rest, and many of them seemed to like the hardtack, as it is called. At last, our friends were called to accompany the pilot back to New Bedford. With handshaking and wishes of good luck, they departed, and we proceeded on our long voyage. On seeing them depart, and knowing it would be four long years, if ever, before I should see any of them again, caused me to regret the step I had taken, but, alas, it was too late. I was booked for four long years, and no way to do but grin and bear it. While gazing longingly at the receding shores of my berth, I was aroused from my gloomy thoughts by the captain who, in a loud but pleasant voice, summoned all hands in the waist of the ship not knowing where it was, I followed the rest, and as they stopped in the centre of the ship, I did the same, concluding that to be the waste. After all hands had gathered there, the captain stated very plainly to us that everyone on board must obey the order given by the officers, and do their duty to the ship and themselves. He wished to see everything pleasant at all times, and if any trouble should arise, to report promptly to him, and he would attend to it, for said he, we are as brothers while on this ship, and our main object is whale oil, and each and every one of you must keep a sharp lookout for the whales, and in order to remind you of it, I will offer as a prize a quantity of tobacco to be given to the one that raises the first whale. After he had finished talking, the officers proceeded to choose their boat's crew, each of the officers as they rank, first, second, third, and fourth mates, choosing one at a time, until they were supplied, those not chosen to act as shipkeepers while the boats were down for whales, or if anyone was sick or disabled, to take their place in the boat. Then each one is instructed what oar they are to pull, and what other duties were expected of them. The first mate's boat is called the larboard boat, the second mate's the waist, and the third mate's the bow boat. The fourth mate's is called the starboard or captain's boat, and is generally used by him when he wishes to go after whales himself, and is also used for gamming purposes. What is meant by gamming is for vessels to meet in their travels across the ocean, when the captain of one will take a crew and row or sail, as the case may be, over to the other vessel, which brings the two captains together. The mate of the ship visited takes a crew and goes back, which brings both first mates together. The sailors are always on the lookout for a gam, as many times they hear from home, and stories are told, songs sung, and a general good smoke all round and generally the cooks are ordered to get up a special dinner or supper for all hands. Sometimes, in good weather, vessels will gam for several days. The crews of the first and third mate's boats are called the port or larboard watch, and those of the second and fourth, the starboard or captain's watch. Having been assigned to watches, the port watch was sent below, and the starboard watch remained on deck, making sail and coiling up rigging as night was fast approaching. At half past six, The watch below had their supper ready to relieve the watch, then on deck at seven o'clock. I watched the steward get the side lights ready to be put up in the rigging, one green and the other red, where they remained until daylight. When the clock in the cabin indicated seven o'clock, the boat steerer that was steering struck the bell hanging just behind him eight times, when the watch below came on deck and those on deck went below to remain until called at eleven o'clock. On taking charge of the deck, an able seaman took the wheel, The one relieved, giving him the course to steer, and another was posted on the gallant forecastle to keep a sharp lookout ahead, the watch being in charge of the first and third mates who walked the quarter deck and, as is generally the case, the crew are called quite often by the command of haul main braces in order to turn her sails to the wind. At nine o'clock, the man at the wheel strikes the bell four times when another takes his place, the one relieved instructing the one relieving him what course to steer. And another of the watch relieves the lookout by taking his place. At 11 o'clock, the wheelman strikes eight bells, when the third mate usually calls the second and fourth officers, one of the crew calling the watch from below. When they are all on deck, the watch relieved goes below to sleep until 3 o'clock, when they again muster on deck, as watchers are on deck four hours and below the same. Before morning, I was not only homesick, but seasick as well, and if I could only got on shore I don't think anything would ever tempt me to try it again. Being cabin boy I slept in the cabin, which was far superior to sleeping in the forecastle, where the sailors are always cramped for room, and seasickness in such a packed up place must be awful. I did not have to stand watch, but every time that bell rung for the first few nights I heard it. The next day the officers and boat steerers got out the whale lines and began to splice them in order to have them long enough to suit. Then the harpoons and lances were ground, the sailors turning the grindstone. The long and short-handled spades are ground, and we were ready for whales. Each boat steerer supplying his boat with four or five irons and lances, ready for use in case they are needed. The lookout rings were also put up, two at the foremost, two at the main, and two at the mizzenmast. The officers and boat steers keep lookout at the main, and the foremost hands at the fore and mizzen. The captain also generally stands masthead several times a day. Masthead lookout is relieved at 4 and 8 bells through the day, and during the dog watch from 4 to 6 o'clock in the afternoon. Both watches are on deck at once and are generally kept busy by washing the deck. A boat's crew consists of an officer, boat steerer, one man at the stroke or after oar, one at the tub who, when a whale is struck, must immediately dash water onto the line to keep it from getting on fire, a midship and bow oarsman making a list of six all told. A whale boat is supplied with the following articles, one large tub of line, one small tub of short line, four or five harpoons, three or four lances, a lantern keg with a lantern, matches and hard tack in it, to be opened only when fast to a whale all night or out of sight of the ship, a bomb gun and bombs to shoot into a whale and explode inside, a mast and sails, paddles, a keg of water to drink, also a small piggin to drink out of for a dipper, a hatchet, short spade, sheaf knife and a drake to make fast to a whale if possible when a boat gets stove, and several other small things which, coupled with the oars and six men, fill the little boat, about 28 feet long, pretty full. The paddles play quite a prominent part in a whale boat, as in case of light winds the crew sits on the gunwale and paddle as hard as possible after the whale's, but it must be done without a noise, as whales are easily startled when off they go like the wind. During the first five or six days, I remained below most of the time, being too sick to be about, as anyone who has ever been seasick would know, and how I longed to be at home, and as I said to myself many and many times, if I was there, I would stay and be contented. Yet everyone on board was kind to me and cheered me all they knew how, but that was not what I wanted. I wanted to go home to New Bedford but as I began to feel better, I was more contented. Only the water and victuals did not suit me, yet I fared better than the sailors. To those that have not been to sea, I will say that fresh water put into new casks in hot weather is not much of a luxury at any time. After it has been in the cask a few days, it gets ropey and stringy, and it is by no means palatable, not even after it settles and works clear. It still has that flat, nasty taste, and is enough to turn some people's stomachs. And the grub, as sailors say, that is still worse. Just imagine for a moment the cook taking a piece of salt meat from the cask, salted with saltpeter and soaking it all night in salt water to freshen it, and then boil it in salt water, and after boiling skims the grease that rises to the top to make scouse, as it's called, for the crew. Scouse is made in this way. Put a quantity of hard tack into a canvas bag and break it up with a hammer. And put it to soak in water overnight. Then for breakfast, warm up the grease and cut up some of the meat and mix it all together. Surely to see it you would think it rather uninviting to make a dinner of, yet sailors as a rule get it to eat every morning, and the same mixture baked, which don't improve it any, for supper. When you hear sailors speaking about lob scouse, this is the mixture they mean, and dandy funk is nearly the same, with molasses put in it to tone it up as extra In order to get a change, the sailors catch albacores and skipjacks, which are usually very plentiful, as they follow a ship for months. Meal cakes, more commonly called johnny cakes, are very good for breakfast, but sailors don't think so, as the way they get them is the same as the farmers give it to their chickens, merely mixed up in warm water and full of lumps as large as a bird's egg. This is to be eaten with molasses, which is furnished in small quantities, and codfish balls. The fish usually being so rancid as to be unfit to eat, as it will not hold together, but we get it pounded up in water, and as potatoes are usually quite plenty, you can add them to suit yourself. There is no necessity of having a salt shaker, as everything will be found salt enough. At dinner, you get baked beans, which is generally quite palatable, and one from each watch divides them so each will receive his share. And the next day, for dinner, you get soft tack, a sailor's name for white bread, which is seldom soft, but very hard and heavy, and many times very sour to the taste. Should you offer one to a common tramp, I do not believe he would accept it. Plum duff is a Sunday dish, and the plums are usually dried apples, and is the best dish on board of a whale ship, especially if it is made good. But many times the owners ship very poor cooks, and that of course means poor food. But if any fault is found, the captain usually calls your attention to the fact that there is plenty hardtack in the main hold and you can eat that which is not much satisfaction at best but one must do it or go hungry. By breaking up hardtack in water sweetened with molasses and a few drops of vinegar called swanky you can relish quite a breakfast for a change and sailors usually get very fat on it. As each man washes his own dishes after eating the cook is not bothered with them and as they usually consist of a small pan and tablespoon and quart tin cup with sometimes a knife and fork, it does not take them long, as they generally pour in a little water and rub it around and wipe it and it's all done. The sailors are not bothered with butter dishes, as they do not get the butter, but I had some in the cabin as there is where they do get it, also in the steerage amongst the boat steerers. On account of such poor food, the sailors many times exchange clothing for better bread and butter or anything good with the boat steerers. I do not know what the tea is made of, that is served for supper, but the bucket the sailors get it in will be about a quarter full of large leaves and look as though they had been gathered in an apple orchard in the fall of the year, yet the tea was better than clear water. The coffee served for breakfast is made of roasted barley and is quite good. But to proceed with my story, about 20 days from home we sighted the Azores Islands, more commonly called the Western Islands, inhabited by Portuguese We ran in at Fayal, one of the largest, but did not anchor as our stay was to be short. The captain did not deem it advisable, as it is considered trouble to haul the cable from the locker of midships and put the necessary turns around the windlass and shackle it to the anchor, as a large quantity of slack is needed to anchor in safety. Besides, the water is 120 feet deep and upwards, which takes a large quantity of chain in order to give the vessel a good scope for holding fast so we shortened sail and let her drift around called laying off and on. On arriving, the captain lowered with the boat's crew and went ashore for letters, fresh meat, potatoes, onions, yams and cabbages and so forth, the crew remaining in the boat until his return. He also shipped three Portuguese for the balance of the voyage. After the supplies were put on board, we squared away, bound south. I watched those islands as long as I could see them, as it seemed good to me to see land again, as I had not yet become reconciled to my position, but they soon disappeared from view as we continued on. While in the latitude of the equator, termed the line, a large school of sperm whales was sighted. The captain immediately called to the officer in charge of the deck at the time, to call all hands and get the boats ready for lowering. The watch below are awakened, jump into their clothes as quick as possible, and get on deck. The first thing to be done is to put the tub of line, which is usually kept on a rest on the rail close to the boat made up for that purpose, into the boat and stand ready to climb down the side of the ship to drop into the boat as soon as she strikes the water. The mate in his place in the stern and the boat steerer in the bow are lowered in her to cast off the falls as she settles in the water. The first mate starts lowering when the rest follow. When the falls are cast off, the boat drops astern of the ship, when the mast is stripped and the sail set, and off we go after the whales. I stood at the rail, watching the boats all the time, wishing I was in one of them, as I was very anxious to see a whale. No sooner had the sails been set than the sailors took their paddles, and each boat strove for the lead, and excitement ran high, each crew doing their best to beat their companions. As soon as the boats are lowered, the captain goes up to the foremost head and signals to the boats with a flag kept for that purpose. When the sails are up, he hoists the flag and takes it down when they sound. When the whales are ahead of the ship, the flying jib is hauled down, when on the bow, the clue of the fore to gallant sail is hauled up, when on the beam the mainsail is hauled up, and when on the quarter the head of the spanker is hauled in, and when astern, the whole spanker is brailed up, so by keeping an eye on the ship, the occupants of the boats can keep run of the school. The cooper stands at the main topmast and hoists another coloured flag when a boat makes fast, so the other boats will know. And be on the lookout in case assistance is needed as many times a boat is kicked to pieces especially sperm whaling as a sperm whale is a fighter and as he has teeth in his lower jaw being the only whale that has teeth he many times makes good use of them by biting anything he can get hold of many times they will settle in the water with their head up straight and snap their jaws together in a fit of rage which would snap a man's head or leg off in a jiffy should he be unfortunate enough to get near Many times a boat is stove, leaving the crew to look out for themselves for hours or until the ship can get to them, as the other boats are supposed to pursue the school, as long as there is any show of getting a whale. The thing went well, until one of the boats drew alongside of a good-sized whale, and the boat steerer took his stand with his harpoon, poised ready to dart. As the boat drew up in position that suited him, he darted, and as luck seemed against him, his iron either fell short or went over the whale, which so frightened him and all the others that they made off with the speed of the wind. So the boats returned to the ship, the crew very much put out with the boat steerer for not making fast. Whales usually swim along in groups like a line of soldiers, and the boat steerer always picks out the fattest and largest one, and in order to get him, he must go between the flukes of two of them, which he must be very careful in doing, as when struck, the whale raises his flukes high in the air and brings them down with a bang, intending to crush his slayer. And should both do so at once he would be in a rather uncomfortable position as they would probably swamp the boat if they did not strike it or as has been done turn upon the boat and smash it to pieces causing broken limbs and loss of life we again after hoisting up the boats continued south nothing occurring worthy of mention until we arrived off the river plate when a heavy gale sprung up which tossed us about like a chip I did not feel very comfortable as I expected we would go to pieces or be tipped over in the heavy seas which looked like mountains rolling towards us, and the ship rolled so and took on so much water you could almost swim on deck, and I could hardly keep my feet but, thank heaven, it did not last very long, and I began to feel better, yet wondering in my own mind how a ship could stand such thumping, rolling and pitching. Those are the times a man with a cool head and good judgement is needed to save the ship from destruction. The loss of many occurring on account of the captain not being competent to do so, as many are promoted to the captaincy through favour more than experience. But Captain Billings was competent and knew what he was about, and I made up my mind to brave it out without any more fear. After the gale abated and the seas quieted down a little, we cruised around for a few days but did not see any whales, so again sailed south, and in rounding Cape Horn the weather was terrible The seas rolling mountains high, and the wind howling through the rigging. I cannot describe it as I would, but as many times vessels are driven back and try for weeks for a favourable time to round it, my readers can form a little idea of what it must be. But, though tossed about like a cockle shell for hours, we at last arrived in smoother waters on the other side. We then squared away for the island of Mocha, on the coast of Chile in South America. That's the end of today's chapter. We're going to continue with the story tomorrow. Now, if you haven't already, consider please going over to patreon.com forward slash The Mariner. You can follow the link in the podcast description. And there we have a growing community of people just like yourself who are interested in sailing, interested in seamanship, and interested to learn more techniques and tips that can help their time on their boat be safer and more enjoyable. So at $5 a month, your donation directly contributes to me being able to produce the podcasts and keeps the lights on, keeps the wheels going around. But if you are interested in developing your skills further, then you may be interested to increase your contribution to the next level up to the mates level. And there for $20 a month, you get access to the one hour professionally produced seamanship training videos that we do each month which drill down and look at specific aspects of seamanship and safety at sea, get into the nitty gritty of it, and uh, share with you information that can make your time at sea both more enjoyable and safer. So if any of that sounds interesting, go along to patreon.com forward slash themariner or follow the link in the podcast description and become part of the community. But that's all for today. So I hope that wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And I look forward to speaking to you in the next one. Cheers.